0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Millennial Teacher Podcast. My name is Shakira Langley, and again, we're talking about all things education through the eyes of young millennial teachers. And today, I'm super excited to have Ms. Courtney Waters with me. She is a former educator now running for a position in Charleston County School Board. So everybody, welcome Courtney Waters. And Courtney, if you could just give us a little bit about your background, how you started in education, and we're really going to just talk about the importance of voting and the impact that you want to bring to education.
1: Yes. Yes. Thank you so much. And first, let me say I'm so happy to be here and I'm so happy there's an audience for millennial voters because Oh, goodness. With everything that's going on right now, millennial voters are the the crowd that everybody wants to turn out and everybody wants to uh, energize. And I think we're we're having a little bit of a difficult time doing that from a national standpoint. But I hope some of these local races can get folks interested uh, because they are the ones that really matter. Um, I started out in education about 10 years ago. I uh, was a teacher in the Mississippi Delta. I actually did a program called the Mississippi Teacher Corps, which is a federal program that's run through the University of Mississippi. And the reason I did that program is because I actually did not discover until I was a junior slash early senior in college that I really had a deep passion for education. Mm -hmm. The reason is because when I left High school. I mean, I had I had all sorts of plans and thoughts about how it impact the world. And I went into college as a Bonner Scholar. And if people aren't familiar with the Bonner Scholarship, it's uh, administered through the Bertram and Carella Bonner Foundation. And it's a scholarship that uh, requires that each participant complete 10 hours of community service every week that they're a college student. Um, and so I went through women's services. I went through working at a crisis hotline and all of these different things because I always had a passion to help which comes really from my upbringing, uh, which I can talk about later. But in my junior year, I realized through mentoring and education, uh, Programs that I had a strong passion for education. And at that point, I had not majored in early childhood or any sort of education program. And so the Mississippi Teacher Corps was a program that was alternate route certification uh, through the University of Mississippi, where you simultaneously worked toward a master's in curriculum and instruction and you taught for two years uh, in, at the time, what they called a critical needs school in the Mississippi Delta. Mm-hmm. And so from there, um, I've worked in the corporate sector and uh, supply chain management, and I'm currently working, uh, for Teach for America doing external affairs work. Um, and it was, it's a whole story about how I got through there, but since you just asked me, anything, <laughs> I'll sort of stop there and we can dive into any of that later. Yes. Yeah, so
0: did you actually do, um, full-blown work in the classroom like were you a full-time teacher doing any of those residency okay and how did you how did you like teaching I know from being a classroom teacher to working with policies procedures and going up from there it's like a whole new world so how did you first manage being a teacher did you like it or did you feel like you wanted to reach education on a higher note what you're doing now
1: so so I feel like it's, it's all of those things. Let me just say, teaching is the most difficult job that I have ever had. Mm-hmm. And that's not like, I'm not paying lip service to it. I don't have to just talk to it because, you know, you've been there and especially that first one to two years, because let's face it, no first and second year teacher really knows uh, how to be an effective instructor. You just don't. And I'm talking. I was in a program where folks were coming in to monitor my classroom and giving me feedback. I was uh, recording lessons and watching my movement in the classroom, making sure I'm keeping my body open to all students, making sure I'm sort of uh, shutting down, distracting behavior at you know at the same time as trying to convey the lesson, dealing. I mean, I'm in the Mississippi Delta teaching English, so I certainly have students who are reading on the third and fourth grade level, although I'm teaching ninth grade. I've got 16 year students mm-hmm. in my classroom. And then I've got gifted students in my classroom. And it's like, how in the world do you differentiate? First of all, I'm struggling. They gave me a pacing guide, and that was it and some books and was like, you need to create a curriculum and you need to make sure you hit these milestones. And I'm like, wait a minute. So where's the rest? And they're like, like, you gotta be kidding me. So one, I will say, I, I really, really enjoy being a teacher. I cried actually when I left because I love my students so much. And that's the thing. I think people don't, if you haven't been in the classroom, you don't even get how you can love other people's kids um so much, but you really do because you experienced so much in that year. Yeah. Being with those kids. But but it it was it was extremely difficult. And I remember I remember having nightmares actually about like classroom management. <laughs> Not playing the same was in, in my school setting anyway, was like, oh, Miss Waters is an awesome classroom manager and, she, you know, her classroom runs ship ship. Man, I went in her classroom at three o'clock on, in seventh period, you know, students get out at 3.15 they were they were silent and blah, blah. And so mind you, one, if I could go back and do it again, a silent classroom is really not the thing, right? But again, first and uh-huh. second, you just want to keep the classroom in control. Yeah. Uh, and so I know now that that actually was not any sort of service, but but that was what I could do was just keep control and try to get, you know, get my direct <laughs> instruction across to the kids, but um I'll say w- the nightmares were around losing control of that. It was like imposter syndrome. Like I know that these kids at some point are gonna realize that they don't have to sit down and be <laughs> Yeah, yeah. They're
0: like you can only they do but so much to me. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, was, I was always terrified of like when is this ship gonna break? And I remember throughout the year they started putting kids who had like return from like alternative school in my class because they were like oh Courtney can handle it. I remember this one student, Jeffrey, had come back. He was like 17 in the ninth grade. And I was like, Jesus, why did they put him in my class? This is gonna wreck the whole thing. Because he was actually hilarious. Mm-hmm. And I would be like like having to turn my back and crack up at his antics, but I'm like, this is so distracting. This is right. Yeah, <laughs> but those those
0: kids, they always make the classroom so lively. And mm-hmm. it ta- it really takes the special teachers to kind of like turn that into like joy. So I love how you said <laughs> that. Um I used to mention earlier, like your number one teaching thing was like control, control. And I don't know if you're familiar, but I did a residency program that's familiar to teach for America. And I just remember them driving like instruction, instruction, instruction
1: mm-hmm. and making
0: sure classroom management. And so when you mentioned about like being an effective teacher, mm-hmm. my first and second year, that's all I thought about. Like if my yeah. principal comes in right now and a child is not crisscross applesauce, or mm-hmm. if one child isn't tracking me, I'm automatically not an effective teacher teacher like mm-hmm. you mentioned the silence is not really that effective you know like mm-hmm. it's deeper than that so like what made you realize like okay this is not really what effective teaching looks like and i know you'll go um into depth about like your core values but i noticed that you said like recruiting quality instruction and providing quality education to educators so what does that even like look like cuz i know it sounds like behavior management but it's deeper than that so mm-hmm. what would you say
1: yeah. Yeah. So. So, first of all, I think you have to start with um, who in whose classroom and in which, which schools does that look like? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's black schools. Uh, and I'm sorry for assuming that, <laughs> that you are. Just no, name. I am. <laughs> but if you are a person of color and or you go to a school that's full of people of color, um, I guess silence, um, obedience—those are the the hallmarks of a good student or a well-run classroom. But if you go to other areas, if you go to more affluent areas, if you go to Montessori schools and all these things, they want to see children engaging with the subject matter. They want to see children, uh, you know, answering their own questions and exploring and all of those things. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that. Um, culturally, schools are not suited uh, to to instruct children of color effectively. They just never were. That wasn't the intention. I mean, at Brown versus Board of Education, the black schools closed and the black kids went into the white schools. And so you had kids sort of integrating into a system that was never meant to identify with them culturally and identify with their uh, manners of expression and all of that kind of thing. And so to me, an effective classroom looks like students happy students are answering questions students are figuring out problems i love the idea of like stations and centers where where students are doing different activities throughout but at the end of the day there's a there's an entire under like i guess i guess a foundation mm-hmm. that from so many of our kids that teaches you how to even operate at that level, how to not take advantage when you are given freedom, um, how to see uh, um, a challenge and take it on fearlessly because fear even in and of itself, or or fearlessness even in and of itself is uh, a privilege uh, that so many of our kids don't have. And so I think effective teaching is, is the ability to connect with students, ability to show them things that they've never seen before and get them to actually be curious about it because we all learn through interacting with the world and not by silently listening to anything absolutely i love that i love that I, you just said a mouthful but like
0: so back to the policies um you just mentioned that children of color we are not our kids are eventually pushed out and i I'm, I'm not i'm not perfect on the preschool to prison pipeline but that is yeah. like how they eventually get pushed into that system and mm-hmm. on a previous episode myself and my colleagues were talking about how like Children of color are really stereotyped. Like the black girls get the attitude stereotype and the males get the behavior stereotype and all of these policies and procedures to quote unquote get them under control or Mm -hmm. to listen, or they have the teachers where like, Oh, I need you to scare this child. Like all of these things are written and then silently like put into place. And Mm -hmm. I feel like as educators, either we go against the grain and we don't do it or we fall in line, but either way it goes, like we're doing our children a disservice. So Mm -hmm. do you think, how do you, how do we reach a system that's so far gone and policies written years ahead of us to Mm -hmm. make an effective change? Like, do you feel like it's far-fetched or like, what do you think the first step is? Because these policies have been written by people who not, who are not of color, who Mm -hmm. really don't even have hands-on experience with teaching and -hmm. they just do it. And we're supposed to execute it.
1: Yeah. You know, to be honest, this, my, this entire, what I'm hoping to embark on in the next two years is really an opportunity to put my theory to the test, which is that if you get people in the room, Uh, who are not just concerned about being career politicians, but honestly going to come to the table with experience and concern for our kids and be advocates for our kids when the doors are closed, that we can make a difference through augmenting policy. Um, A board's job is to make sure that policy and budget um, are appropriate to support the goals of the district. And we hear all this chatter in CCSD right now through the mission critical items and, and through um, since George Floyd um, talking about the DEI and implicit bias training that's supposed to come. We're hearing talk about it. But I think that what we typically see is that we pay lip service to issues. We, we throw out some solutions, but we don't really see them through mm-hmm. for a number of reasons. Um, First of all, organizational change is just very difficult. You got to get people to buy in. You got to get people to stay committed to it, even when you have turnover, um, folks leave their jobs and, and and then, you know, whatever they were championing goes away with them. And so I don't know, I, w- I don't want to say that it's anything nefarious, right? That That is the reason that we don't, you know, get rid of policies that don't work and augment others. But I would like to sit through uh, the decision-making processes and see if I can't be the person who constantly brings it back to the forefront that, oh, but we're not going to forget. But let's not forget that if you're right, not, you know, if you're not white, able bodied, male, um, and, and heterosexual, cisgender, all of those things, policies don't speak to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most of those things is interesting because I even trying to pursue office, but being a millennial myself, I'm always wondering how much I can really talk about, um, how deeply I can go into some of these issues because if it's not mainstream, it doesn't get paid attention to. Absolutely. And so I'm just I'm just thinking when the policies are being augmented, when we're considering uh, new strategies and to, and to go down different paths, if we have people who come to the table who are deeply concerned about diversity, equity and inclusiveness and cultural competency or whatever you want to call it, whatever it is, can we make a difference? And so I'm mm-hmm. I can't sorry about that, but I can't um, say 100 percent. That I know that's going to be the answer. But what I'm saying is, my theory is that that will make a difference. And that's what I'd like to do over the next two years.
0: I love that. Because as a teacher myself, I often get like frustrated with leadership, but I mm-hmm. have to keep in mind that there's people above them. Mm-hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like the professional developments that we get, they're very surface level. So, like with the Black Lives Matter movement and more millennials bringing to the forefront two leadership teams, like this is going. Going on in our world and yes the kids need to know standards and yes data is important but it's also important to educate them about what's going on outside mm-hmm. of the doors right oh, so, <laughs> so i guess my push is my struggle is one i heard someone say that it's not my job to educate people who are not of color about like black lives issues matters of that third and i get that because you know our education system didn't really feed it to us like we had to go get it for ourselves, and we 're mm-hmm. more woke more now more than ever, so mm-hmm. I get that that frustration like you shouldn't have to force education on people. But then again, I have a tug and war because it's like, if we don't do it and if we don't fight for it, it'll never get done. So I guess Mm -hmm. I'm like torn into. And then at the same time, I'm just like really frustrated with leadership because I feel like it's a checkoff list thing. Like we have Mm -hmm. to do diversity and equity and inclusion because, you know, the movement's going on, but let's just do it to say we did it and move Mm -hmm. on and go back to how we can be effective for our kids by, checking this and making sure this data is correct you know what I'm saying like it's just so much
1: 100
0: so, so do you think like it starts with the professional developments becoming uncomfortable or do you think it's something that teachers have to understand like there's people ahead of admin who it has to get passed through like how yeah. can we get a peace of mind I guess I should say
1: yeah. And I, I think in all that you said, two things come up for me. One is transparency um, and the other is the nature of professional development. Um, so to 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 be clear, I I think that professional development as we do it inside of schools really doesn't work. Absolutely, um, I think I'm glad you said it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, because we we get what is it? Three thirty or three o'clock, whatever time your school day is, you get about fifteen minutes in your classroom. Everybody's dragging in there because they're like, "Oh, I just have these kids. I'm ready to go home." With, and and you get into the room and and you hear a presentation and you you get a piece of paper and then you go on and you're expected to implement it. That is not actually how anybody makes change happen. Only mm-hmm. in schools are folks given extremely small amounts of time to to learn and digest everything that they're supposed to learn and then ask to go and impart that to other folks. Not only is it a disservice to teachers, but it's a disservice to students because you cannot effectively implement anything that you had about 20 minutes to absorb. Right. Um, And so for me, when it comes to DEI, I've I've said uh, since the beginning of my race that one of the things I want to see is uh, DEI practitioners. Not not even me, not you. We're averse. We're a little more woke than the average, but we are not DEI practitioners. We are not. We are not skilled in having difficult conversations and and, and allowing them to go from pain to effectiveness because that's difficult. When you are confronting people with truths about themselves, they're going to go through, they're going to experience a lot of dissonance. And so you need people who are experts at dealing with that and managing through that to get over to the other side. But not only do we need to hire DEI practitioners, we need to have them in our schools just like we have instructional coaches. Because you've been going through this and living life one way for your entire life it 's not going to be solved with one you know with one one um engagement, and then the other part of that is transparency you uh mentioned just understanding where your leaders are are sort of um, you know at a loss for 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 solutions. And I do think that one of the, one of the things I remember as a teacher was just not understanding why anything was happening. You know, the principal came in and said this is what it was, and we took that and we went on. There weren't like opportunities for me to hear from the district personnel who were over instruction and curriculum, and or you know behavior or whatever whatever the case was. And I do think there should be more transparency. All major organizations right now are pushing toward greater transparency, um, but the school district I think because it's a government-run organization, there's no precedent for that. There's a lot of red tape. There's a lot of layers. And so I think that leaders just have to be cognizant of that and try to bring some of that that we know are best practices from other spaces into the school district.
0: Right. Right. And I I noticed that one of your core values is cultural, competent leaders. So um, I don't know if you had this. I'm pretty sure you had this frustration. But as a classroom teacher, I feel like I mentioned earlier, like a lot of the times our way of thinking is very one way. And we we don't really know what the leaders are juggling. So Mm -hmm. do you think that leaders need to. I guess, you know, like for now we have like point people, like who we go to and then that point person goes to the other person like it's a chain. Right. So do you think that leaders need to take a step back and um, take the one on one time to really take a day in the classroom, like, remember what it is to be a teacher and then ask teachers what exactly is that they're needing. Because I know, I feel like sometimes it's kind of sugarcoated, like, just let you know I'm always here. If you need anything, you can come to me. But I'm not even going to lie, as a teacher now, my first year, even now, I'm just like, you're not about to do anything. Like, I can come run to you. And it's, 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 again, it's going to be surface level. But I mean, I do have people now who, if I voice my concerns, they're definitely quick to get it done or address it. But previous years before, it's just like, you know, you can come to me and then I come to them and it's just like, okay, we'll look into it and it never Mm -hmm. gets done. Mm -hmm. So how do you, like, what is your definition of a cultural competent leader?
1: Yeah. So, so cultural, cultural competence for me in that way was was more specifically referring to students and how we show up for students. But I think you raise a really good point, which is it, it's really how you show up to anybody. I think what makes a culturally competent leader is understanding what the needs are of the people you're imparting your wisdom or your information to. Um, because learning and knowledge flows always have to go two ways. Um, I mean, I'm a manager in my organization and one of, one of my mentors that I constantly work with is always trying to help me figure out how to get feedback from folks who who work for me. Um, Mm -hmm. And we don't typically think that that's important because we think, oh, you know, this person's the manager, this person's the principal, or this person's the boss or whatever. And they know, you know, everything, but it's just, it's just not the case because we're all human. And so a part of being a great leader is being responsive uh, to the people who are following you or who you hope to follow you to show them that you're worthy of being followed. And so I think um, to your point, People are always busy. Um, Principals, especially, I mean, they've got a ton of paperwork. They've got, you know, people within their schools looking up to them for instructional leadership. And so I actually think uh, to get to get you more of what you need out of them. I actually think it's the onus is on district level folks and people board level to to figure out ways to free up principals, principals roles are supposed to be instructional leader or at a minimum cultural leaders. Um, if they can't be instructional leaders, but they've got, you know, staffs of other folks under them who can be you know specialists or what have you, they at least need to be able to manage. But I think they are so bogged down just like teachers are uh, with, with, you know, ancillary tasks, they don't really get an opportunity to do what they need to do. And so I think, um, I think you raise an excellent point, uh, but I don't actually think it's a wholly the fault of anybody in the buildings. I think that we're constantly failing to make schools um, uh, or people in the schools able to respond to the needs of people in them. Right. You yeah, know, that's a great point.
0: That's a really good point. Cause I struggle with not trying to attack leadership all the time, but like, as a teacher you like you're then your first go to like to be frustrated so i'm glad you say that and it it definitely takes a lot of like understanding on both levels because i feel like the teacher struggle is you guys don't really know what we're going through like you forget because you're leader and then as teachers like we forget what they're going through as well so i think it's a lot of miscommunication and a lot of things like you said that need to be taken out to for both parties to to get along and avoid the teacher burnout mm-hmm. um um, I know you said like most of your policies are student geared, too. So can you tell us exactly what restorative justice, urgency, culture, competent leaders and children at the center look, feel and sound like for children, students and parents? I know that's a loaded question, so you can no. break it apart if you need to.
1: No, I mean, to be honest, it, the, the simplest way that I can put it and or simplest, I should say more the, the most brief way I could put it. Um, is that everybody is getting what they feel they need to get out of out of the education space? One, I think, restorative justice is so needed um, in schools because the school-to-prison pipeline, the intervention that needs to happen is restorative justice. Um, we need to have uh, school counselors and, and and guidance folks and, and behavioral uh, therapists and folks in schools to help children deal with their trauma. Everybody is walking around here operating out of trauma, and when children are doing it, 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 it looks worse. It looks like fighting. It looks like screaming. It looks like falling asleep in the classroom and being mm-hmm. engaged. That's what it looks like when students are operating out of trauma. Um, and simply reacting. And so if, if if schools are set up to help children become as successful as they can so they can go on and enhance their qualities of life and make an impact on the world, then we can't just deal with ABCs and one-two-threes. We've got yes. to, have to deal with the individual. Um, and it's actually one of the reasons I left the classroom, because I, I never did really answer that. But really, I just looked across my classroom on a regular basis, and I was like, I'm wasting these kids' time. Mm-hmm. And say that because it's, the, it's, a, it's a controversial thing to say, right? Because you've got people on all sorts of camps. But if I think about what our kids need, um, it is the social and emotional help. It is the developmental help. It is all of those things they're not getting at home. And that's not to dis the parents. I come from a single mother with five kids. We did not sit around the dinner table and have you know intuitive conversations. And we weren't asked how we felt about things. Things just were. The money was the money. It was bringing in what it brought in. And my mother had to go to work and she was busy. And so there wasn't a lot of opportunity to express myself or unpack my feelings and all of these things that we learn if if we get the opportunity as a and so one restorative justice, uh, and, and that looks like students actually being able to respond to respond in healthy ways to their emotions, their feelings. Uh, it, it, it looks like students, instead of being suspended and falling behind, uh, farther and farther behind in coursework, being allowed to learn from their behavior uh, or learn from their missteps and then move forward. Um, urgency for me, it is, you know, there's so much that goes into the day to day. And I know there's so many issues that, that the district, faces, but we've got to decide when we're going to prioritize what is most important. And I think it's the lack of ability to connect across lines of difference. Um, I personally think, I mean, because, you you know, you you see teachers who do a great job. You see, you know, amazing instructors. Uh, you see classrooms that are doing great things. There's, there's so much goodness in the district. But the reason that so many students don't do well is because we're not connecting with all of them. And I think a lot of that is rooted in, in the DEI, uh, the lack of DEI that our nation has not done um, that's there. And then cultural competency in, in students, in classrooms, it is allowing children to see themselves in the curriculum. It's allowing them to engage subject matter that actually matters to them. Um, it is not making fun of people because the dialect or the language, the colloquial language that they use in their culture does not sound like the king's English. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we tend to make people feel less than a lot of times when they come to the table, and that's simply unacceptable. We do it to parents, uh, we do it to students, uh, we do it to communities, and it's and it's it's not acceptable. And then children at the center, you know, I think best example I can think of is what's happening in this current school board race. We've got so much chatter about all of this nonsense um, that frankly doesn't have anything to do with children. It's adults upset about what other adults did but I'm not hearing a lot of collaboration and really good conversation around what is going to uh, make a, a strong difference for students.
0: Wow. Yeah. No, you just said so much and I'm just like trying to take it all in, but that was, that was <laughs> so good. Um, I especially love how you just said, like, especially the restorative justice piece has really been like sitting with me. Um, mm-hmm. I just, I have a hard time, like with the push out of boys, that, like black, children of color, like out of the classroom. And as a teacher, like some of the policy that they have in place for them to like, you know, you have the behavior interventionists and they come in and they like legit take them out. So mm-hmm. as a teacher, I'm always thinking of ways to like keep kids in and how can I before it even gets to a level where somebody has to legit pull them out. Like what am I doing? Mm-hmm. Or what about this day? Or what about these standards are making kids push out and the the whole trauma piece that you said like now more than ever we need to be an outlet for kids and an open, uh, open door for them, not just teaching them like you said, the ADCs and one, two, threes. I love, I love that. Thank you so much for that. Um so I guess my biggest question for you is, so you correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of teachers, especially millennials, we are now like changing how we approach education. So the teachers we had back in the day, that is not what you're getting now. <laughs> but then also on top of us like being young and fresh and having new ideas, we're also like loaded with a whole new curriculum. Because I remember like as a kindergartner, I wasn't doing half of the things that I'm teaching my kids now. And so as a teacher, i like, often have to say in my head, I don't remember doing all this. Like, why is it taking all of this for children to learn how to read and how to write? And it's very exhausting. And mm-hmm. then like, as you, as everybody knows, we're living in a whole pandemic. And today was my first day back in the classroom. And so I think, of, yeah, I think about teaching kids before this pandemic and now doing it with masks on, with plexiglass, with some of them being at home. And I thought about the hazardous pay and how the teacher burnout mm-hmm. is real. And mm-hmm. I noticed that there was only like, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, a $500 pay for teachers who are legit risking their lives to come back into the classroom. Mm-hmm. And um, it just was in my head, like it's $500 all that people value teachers on. And yeah. it just doesn't sit well with me. So I guess my question for you is like, Teachers, we are a very underpaid and we are not recognized at all. And we don't do it for the check. Everybody knows that. And we don't do it for the recognition. But I feel like 2020 has shown the world that teachers are very essential. But as the kids are getting pushed out, but so are good teachers because we are burned out. We are working second jobs. We have families. And then... Like I said, we don't do the recognition, but on the top on top of that, you just slap like a five hundred dollars pity hazardous pay. You get like, how can we make c- counties, states, the the world recognize teacher and give them what they're owed, the respect, the pay? I know that is very uh, a milestone, but where do you think it starts, and why do you think that this w- line of work is so undervalued?
1: Oh goodness, that, you know, I wish, I wish, you know, I so I'm queen of going all the way back because I'm always like, we should have to look at history. Right, right, right. And I, I I honestly wonder, and I haven't read the book yet. So I'm gonna say, don't quote me and say this is hundred percent right. This is what I surmise based on what I have read, what I what I have seen. I really think we we started out paying teachers low because it was sort of, it started as a profession. It was mostly women, mostly um, mm-hmm. women going into it. And it was almost seen as just like doing something with children right during the day. And then we realized like, Oh, this thing actually has to work because we're, our, our world is growing. It's not, it, we're not um, existing on uh what we make from farming and, and whatever things we're producing in the home, like we're going into industry now. And it's like the, the, the education system still has not caught up from a curriculum standpoint and certainly not a pay and respects uh, standpoint uh, to account for all of the work that it really takes teachers to do, you know, to get students to the next level. Um, and so one of the things, one of the things that I really hope is that we can increase teacher pay. Um, but, but we're not, fully funded from a federal standpoint. Mm -hmm. Or meaning South Carolina as a state gives money to education, you know, as a city or a county, we give money to education. The federal government also gives money to education. And We're not, we don't always fully receive those funds. Um, we have uh, there are certain pots of money that can go toward increasing teacher pay. There's there's certain ways that you can work the budget to increase uh, increase things like that. Um, and I honestly don't know all of them, but what I am committed to is figuring out how we can uh, bring more money to the teaching profession. Because one, I don't. I don't think you just have to teach because you because because you know it's fully out of your heart. You also teach and you work in general to, to earn a living, right? It's disrespectful not to pay people enough money to earn a living when they've gone to all the school. I mean, think about it. We got teachers going to get doctorate degrees just to make sixty thousand dollars a year. Yes, That's,
0: yes, it's ridiculous. You know?
1: Like you just pay for all that school, yet they might forgive some of your loans after you pay half of, I mean, you know, it's just, it's just ridiculous. And I've often thought to myself, um, and I, and I'm sure I got this from some book or some podcast or some conversation, but I've always liked the idea of in the, in the beginning, if we cannot find the money immediately for teachers, then we should offer the same types of benefits military families get. Mhm. Um, Military families get get you know con- special consideration with housing. They get you know special ac- access to, to lower food prices if they want to go shop on base and and different things like that. And we don't sort of off- open up those other social supports or wraparound services to teachers. And I think that's something that could be done. Um, If if folks really wanted to get into the room and work it out. But I also think um, when you pay people more, folks actually just give you a little bit more respect. And and it's unfortunate. But um, if we think about the perception of teachers, I think the pay and the perception go hand in hand. I really do, because you have people that give lip service all the time and say, oh, I I value teachers. I think teachers are amazing. And especially in COVID, you got all the memes, you got Twitter above. Oh, yes. (laughs) Everybody's talking about. How difficult the job of, of jobs of teachers are, um, and I think I think it's a good thing, um, but we don't need it to just be a conversation like so many things are. Once it dies out in the press, once COVID is is is, is managed, people mm-hmm. go on with their lives. Like now is the time for teachers to get out in the streets and 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 advocate for themselves. Like go and keep converse, keep conversations going with your state representatives and your federal representatives. And we need to, we really need to put our pressure to them to make sure that they don't forget us. And I say us because, I mean, shoot, I'm back in nonprofit. You know, it's, it's just a struggle. Mm-hmm. If you're not working for a major corporation, it's a struggle um, to get what you feel you deserve. And certainly if you're a woman and a black woman at that, in any of those spaces, um, it's a struggle. Um, I mean, shoot, well, never mind. I'll stop there. <laughs> no, 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 go ahead. <laughs> you, you, you know, you can't get me on myself cell box. Value of black women in this country because that will be all off me. <laughs> no, I, I'm right there
0: with you. Right there with you. It's yeah. a, it's a, it's a, it's like we're fighting the good fight always, and every time we get try to get ahead, it's like we get pushed back. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely. <gasps> Oh, man. Yeah. So I I love everything that you stand for. I really thank you for all your insight, everything that you're doing for South Carolina, specifically Charleston and for educators. Do you have like any closing remarks to teachers, parents, even students or admin who might be listening? Um, Any tidbits you want to say about voting and like your overall like plan for success?
1: Yeah. So. One, I think your vote is is so important. Um, I know a lot of millennials are planning to abstain. I've, I've heard quite a few of my aunt just had to drag my cousin by the ear, kicking and screaming, screaming in Philly to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because you know he's like, "Oh, we're voting for the lesser of two evils and blah blah blah." But what I will right. say is, your vote is, and it's going to sound cliche, but it's also true. Your vote is your power, and don't don't ever give that away. Um, you can choose today. What you want for your future. And if your elected officials don't respond, then you vote them out on the next go round. But you you have a right and a a, and an obligation to come to the table every time. Um, And it's so true that if you didn't get involved, you can't have anything to say about it. The other thing that I would say is um, local elections are really the most important the quickest way that you're going to see change is when you elect strong local individuals one of the reasons that i that i thought running for school board was worthwhile for me um even at $25 a meeting at the time that I decided to run is because you can you can actually make a difference in the lives of students in a few short meetings if you can come mm-hmm. together and you can work together with the folks on the board. Um, if you start uh, with a group of people who are experienced and passionate um, about the issues, you can actually go in and make a difference. And I said, wow, what would that even look like <laughs> if, mm-hmm. we, if we could get people to come to the table and work toward the same uh, goal in alignment Um, So there's that. And then, you know, really, I mean, just just vet your candidates. Um, I know when when you've got 16 candidates up and five in particular in my district, it can be difficult to cut through the noise and figure out where you want to go. But I would say the research time is worth it because, I mean, you're you're deciding now who's going to set policy for your babies. Right.
0: Right. Wow. That's so important. Oh my gosh. I am just really impressed with you. I'm just so fascinated that you're, you're a millennial yourself. Like you said, you're a black woman. So like, you know, you always have odds against you, but I am praying and hoping that you continue to fight the good fight, especially for our fellow educators. And, um, thank you all for listening. Thank you, Courtney, for your wise words. I just feel like I can go in the classroom tomorrow. with a little bit more pep in my step because there's people like you who are advocating for educators and students. So thank you. Thank you so
1: much. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. And I, I just genuinely appreciate your energy at this moment.
0: Of course. Thank you guys for listening. This has been the Millennial Teacher Podcast.